Thank you, Jordan, and uh, the worship team. And I believe you. I do. I believe you. I believe God is doing some unique and awesome things in this local representation of his church, which we take no credit for. It's simply his grace and his mercy in our lives. But I honestly believe when we sing together as a congregation, we want to be a church ready for you. As I listen to you sing, I believe it. I really do believe it. And as I get a little older, and I know I'm getting older, when yesterday at a wedding we were at, we were talking in the parking lot afterwards before going to our cars, and I'm standing there like this because there's nothing up there anymore, and it gets burnt so quick. And I was like, wow, how time's passed from being a young man to standing in a parking lot with your hand on your head. But as I get older and as I learn more about ministry and being a pastor, I can honestly say this because I'm beginning to understand it and experience it. As your pastoral staff, I'm not speaking for myself, but we love you. We love you. God is making you into a beautiful congregation. And we don't take credit for that as your pastors. We recognize that as the Lord. But I commend you that in the summer, on a Sunday, you have committed to making it a priority in your life to gather with his people and to come into his house and to worship him. And as we were worshiping earlier this morning, I thought, you know, Lord, help us, help us never to make this just routine. Or just to come as if it's just another Sunday. And here's what thought went through my head as I was sitting there as we were worshiping. I thought, you know what? If we ever had the opportunity, you were invited by someone famous in the world, whether it be a political leader or an athlete or a famous musician or artist, if we were invited and they wanted to host us for an appointment, I guarantee we would be ready, and I guarantee we would never forget that experience that we had. And as I sat there this morning, I said, do we really realize every Sunday that we gather together as a body, as Calvary Baptist Church, do we realize that the creator of the universe, sustainer of all things, is hosting us? It is an awesome, awesome privilege. And I pray that I will never make a church attendance a routine. But I pray that every Sunday I come, I'm realizing I'm gathering with some of his children, that the body is millions all around the world. But I get the privilege of being with this group of people, and we are going to come prepared because we are not hosting God. Let's make sure we're clear on that. God is hosting us. And so we come ready, alert, respectful, willing to engage and to worship. And so as one of your pastors, thank you that even in the summer, you have made it a priority to be ready to worship our great God. And so I thank you for that. Let us pray. Father, I just ask that you would help us now as we look into your word. Thank you for how you use worship to turn our hearts and our minds towards you. And so I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, you gave us this morning to host us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to come into your presence. That alone is such an incredible thing you've provided for us. Thank you for making that possible. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for hosting us. It has been an honor and a privilege to worship you this morning. Now as we dig into your word, God, I thank you that you have given give us specific instruction to do what exactly we have just sung about, about being a church ready for your return. So I thank you, Lord, 
for how even the orchestration of that song is tying into the theme of your word this morning. I praise you for that. So God, I pray that these things we're going to discuss this morning about how to be ready, I pray that you would help us to apply that in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I get started, I just want to make sure because, you know, I'm so comfortable around family, so sometimes I forget that I, we might have guests here that have never been to church before. And when I said that uh, I'm putting my money on Jim Neville to win the pieting competition, I do not endorse gambling at all. And uh, I personally don't gamble, and we as a church don't endorse that. So if you're visiting today, don't worry. Uh, we live by the book as well. So... I hate to be this morning the bearer of bad news, but the reality is, as I'm sure all of you are noticing, we are entering a season of transition. We're entering a season of transition. Summer is winding down. I see Walmart bags and markers and pencil cases all around my living room right now as my wife prepares our kids to go back to school. School starts up in just over a week, and in fact, for some people, school starts this coming week. September 11th, we go back to two morning services. And in the evening, we'll have the Toronto Mass Choir. Less than a month, I looked this up, till the official start of fall. Wow. Last week, I was up north, and uh, believe it or not, I started to see things changing on the trees. The green is fading, and other, other colors are coming in, and it's creeping south. Because yesterday we were in Uxbridge for a wedding. Go north on Lakeridge, you'll see what I'm talking about. Fall is upon us. But before we leave summer, I want to just publicly thank all of you for your investment financially, for your investment in serving in our summer ministries to children this summer. It's an amazing gift that God has given us to reach so many families in our community. And I asked Michaela Blackburn, who was our family ministries intern for the summer. She's gone back to university. She had to be back there yesterday. I asked her, could you just put some numbers together of how many people did God allow our ministry to touch in terms of family with children? And between Vacation Bible School, Adventure Day Camp, our Creative Arts Camp joined the cast, and our soccer program... God allowed us to interact with 1,228 children this past summer over these last months, which is incredible. Now, I never want to be one who inflates numbers, so you need to understand the actual unique number of attendees, because some kids may have done Join the Cast and some kids may have done Spark Soccer. We actually got the privilege of ministering to 900 individual kids over the summer. And here's the amazing thing. God, by his grace and mercy, moved in the hearts of 165 of that 900 to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ over the summer. So we praise God for that. Season of transition. But it's not all bad news. Because each season brings with it its unique elements that we enjoy. So for instance, in summer, which is the season we're just wrapping up, We've enjoyed a variety of outdoor activities, swimming, hiking, time spent at trailers, cottages, cruising in cars that don't get driven in other seasons of the year, trips to Enniskillen to have ice cream. A man who's guilty this summer of going to Enniskillen to have ice cream. In fact, this week I saw one of our members, I won't mention his name, but he entered some challenge that they have there, and I think it was six scoops of every flavor on a mountain 
And if you complete it, it's free. He took some home. Okay? But awesome, right? Trips to Enniskillen. How about the fruit trucks on Taunton? I tell you, your best bang for your buck out there is the Caribbean. Go jerk chicken or roti. It's the best bang for your buck if you go to the fruit trucks out there. Barbecues. I finally learned how to barbecue a steak that my wife said wasn't bad this summer. So <laughs> praise the Lord for that. There's growth. So each season has with it its own unique elements. Besides the amazing colors of fall, one of the perks I look forward to with this coming season is Thanksgiving. And in particular, homemade pies. I am a blessed man to be married to a pie maker. I always tell her, you know, that scripture that says train up a child in the way she should go when she gets old, she won't depart from it. I always thank my mother-in-law for training Jen how to make pies because she has not departed from it. And during the fall, during the fall, it seems like we consume way more pies than we do any other time of the year. It's crazy. I don't know whether it's the cozy coolness. You go pick apples, therefore we should have a fresh apple pie, pumpkin pie, pecan pie. It's good, isn't it? But my favorite pie of all, probably many of you haven't had it, maple syrup pie. It's unbelievable. All those north of seven are going, oh, yeah. Maple syrup pie. And maple syrup pie has four key ingredients. 100% pure Canadian cough-out-made maple syrup. So that's the first ingredient. Secondly, cream, eggs, and, of course, a crust. Now, a crust is one of the most underappreciated parts of a pie. But if you are a pie maker, you'll know what I'm about to say. The crust is the difference maker between a good pie and a great pie. Amen? And all the ladies are shaking their head. Amen. All right? That's exactly right. And then to round it all off, though, it would be an absolute shame to not smother that pie with homemade whipped cream. That's what I have in my notes. A-H, exclamation, exclamation. Ah, exactly. So each season has its own elements, unique elements that we enjoy. Well, in the passage that we're going to look at today, we find Jesus having a conversation with his disciples as they're journeying towards Jerusalem, where eventually he is going to willingly give himself up to suffer and to die. So in light of what he knew was coming, he wanted to prepare his disciples for a season of transition that they were about to enter. And it was going to be a drastic season of transition because soon he would no longer be physically with them. And you know what's interesting as I studied this passage and as I've been studying this summer, if you take a look and do a survey of the life of Christ through the Gospels, one thing you will find common popping up everywhere, it doesn't matter what scenario is in, doesn't matter what group of people he is with, he used every opportunity to grow, strengthen, equip, and make disciples. That's just what he did. And that is why, as a pastoral team, we have sought God out, and we have tried to very, make it very clear what our vision and mission is here at Calvary Baptist Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known, and what we do, our mission is to enable people to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. So that when anyone asks you, what do you guys do at church? We enable each other to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. That is what we do. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10, 
And we will see how Jesus was preparing his disciples for a season of transition. And we will see some key points that will help us to be a church that is ready for him. Luke chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing and looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Four key ingredients to discipleship that I believe Jesus points out for us here. Four components regarding the meaning and the nature of becoming a fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. And the first key ingredient of discipleship is found at the beginning of verse 3, where Jesus says, so watch yourselves. Watchfulness. And what's interesting, the present tense of Christ's charge to his disciples to watch themselves indicates the constant attention followers of Jesus Christ should give to their spiritual walk. He doesn't say, I'm glad you watched yourself. He says, no, watch yourself. My son Jason just completed his first season of rep baseball with the Oshawa Legionnaires, and I was surprised how, how fast the year went. And the day they were eliminated from the playoffs last week, the very next night was their tryouts to make the team for the upcoming season. And now I begin to understand that baseball really is an all-year endeavor for him. The season's in the summer, but then you have fall program, indoor winter training, and then you're back to the spring. And you know what, folks? We need to recognize as disciples of Jesus Christ, there is no off-season in terms of how you live your life for Jesus Christ. There is no off-season. We are to be watchful all the time in terms of how we are living our lives. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, if you want to be a follower of mine, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Watchfulness. Daily, you need to take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. In our culture, I'm noticing there seems to be a mad rush right now and a great emphasis on challenging people to watch themselves physically. I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like every week when I travel around town, at every corner, there's some new gym or new fitness center opening up with incredible low weekly rates. They're popping up all over. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am all for being healthy and for being a good steward of our physical bodies because, after all, they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And there is not a day that goes by in my life where I don't at least consciously think about the importance of watching myself physically in terms of what I eat and ensuring that within my schedule I add some physical activity. I'm always aware of that consciously. I don't necessarily always act upon that thought. But I'm at least aware and conscious of the need to watch myself physically. But sadly, I'm afraid to admit that there are too many seasons in my life as a follower of Jesus Christ where I have been more consistent in watching myself physically than I am about watching myself spiritually. Jesus says, watch yourselves. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So make sure your life is in balance. Don't only watch yourself physically, but make sure equally and if not more, you're watching yourself spiritually because there's benefit to that now and for eternity. A key ingredient to becoming a fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ is to daily, intentionally, vigilantly watch ourselves spiritually. In partnership with His Holy Spirit, examine how you're living your life in whatever scenario you find yourself and with whatever group you find yourself with. In Romans 12:1, Paul urges us, in view of God's mercy, which we've been singing about this morning, what does he say? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Isn't that an incredible statement? We have had fantastic worship together this morning. But true and proper worship happens every day. Doesn't matter whether you're in the church or not. Doesn't matter where you are. Offering your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. So why is that so important? Why is Jesus so emphasizing to his disciples the very first ingredient in disciples is to watch yourself? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 1, so that we will not become a person through whom temptations and stumbling blocks are presented to another person. Our lives should not be a channel of things that cause other people to sin. You know, as I journey into parenting teenagers, I'm having these conversations with my kid all the time about their social media, about their phone, about their texts. And it's amazing sometimes how even within our church, even within the body of Christ, we have to be so careful because there's constant things that I'm helping my kids to realize this is a red flag. That type of language is, is someone trying to tempt you to go down a path that you shouldn't be going down. So it's really important that you watch yourselves because you do not want to be a person through who temptations and stumbling blocks are presented to someone else. You don't want to live a life that channels things that cause other people to sin, especially fellow brothers and sisters within the family. In this passage, Jesus refers to brothers and sisters in the family as little ones. As I did some studying this week, often I always thought that just meant children. No, little ones means God's children, who he cares for and loves so much. So little ones can refer to the family of God, as well it can refer to infants. But not only that, in terms of discipleship, it refers to new believers who are just starting out on their discipleship journey. One thing I appreciated about Jason's coach this year is at the end of the season, he called each player in and the parents came in and we had a postseason evaluation. And one of the things I thank the Lord for and give him credit for is that Jason, by God's grace, was able to exemplify 
good character, integrity, and hard work in front of his coaches. And his coach said to him, I want you to be at tryouts because the new guys need to see what is expected of players on my team in terms of how to conduct yourself on the field with respect towards umpires and with respect towards parents and the other players. And Jesus is saying the same thing. You need to watch yourselves because there are young believers in your midst that are looking to you to model what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And it would be a terrible thing if through your life you caused one of these young believers to sin or to go on a path that is contrary to what Christ wants. I don't know if you remember in our first discipleship series, we went through a study called Real Life Discipleship. And we found out that there was a wheel that kind of identified the different stages of growth for a disciple. And one of the key things that we learned was how am I to live if I am surrounded or if I'm in contact with a new believer? And there was three things that we learned in that, in that study together. The first thing is when you're around a new believer, you need to share with them new truth. But then the second thing was you need to share with them your life. That's so important because you can tell someone truth, but it's going to be so much more impactful when they watch you apply that truth in your life. And then to model for them spiritual disciplines. And Christ gives his disciples a very stern warning in this text regarding the seriousness of being a person who is doing the tempting towards another brother or sister. In verse 2 he says, Woe, woe to anyone through whom temptations come to another brother or sister. The New Living Translation says, What sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? And he illustrates for them how serious an offense this is to God by stating that the fate of such a person who causes another within the body of Christ to sin is worse than if a huge millstone, and if you know what a millstone is, you can Google it afterwards, but it, it's a massive round like Fred Flintstone type looking stone, the hole in the middle, and there was a wooden piece that would go out like this, and it was used to grind grain. And either a person would push the wooden thing to send the wheel around to crush the grain, or they would use animals. Like, they are massive, okay? And so the person who causes another person in the body to sin, Scripture is saying it is worse than if a huge millstone were placed around their neck and they were tossed into the sea. In other words, death would be a better fate for that person than to face God's judgment for such an offense. That is how serious God takes our actions that cause others in the body to sin. So what does he do? He calls them to be spiritually vigilant. Watch yourselves. The first ingredient of the meaning and the nature of being a disciple is you have to be willing to watch yourself. Be careful, brothers and sisters, to live sensible lives in community with one another because the impact on others and the personal consequences for yourself, if you don't, are extremely serious. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Sometimes we're guilty of watching our doctrine, not so much our life. They cannot be separated. Your doctrine will influence how you live. Watch your life, watch your doctrine closely. That's daily, intentionally, vigilantly. Persevere in them. There's no off-season. Because if you do, what Jesus asks you to do, here's the good news. You will save both yourself and those who are under your influence. First ingredient, watch yourselves. The second ingredient for discipleship is forgiveness. 
This ingredient balances the first. Though the warning about sin was very serious, equally important to Jesus for his disciples to understand was that they need to be willing to extend forgiveness. Because you see in verse 1 it says, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. It's inevitable even within the Christian community, we are going to cause each other to stumble from time to time. Yes, as we grow as disciples, we should sin less, but we will never be sinless until we are glorified, until we are with our Savior. Therefore, in light of that reality, there has to be a willingness within our congregation, because it's the only congregation that I get to teach to, so within our congregation, there has to be a willingness as we enter a new season of ministry in the fall, that we, by God's grace, will create an atmosphere that is open and willing to extend grace and to extend forgiveness to one another. In light of our human weaknesses, and everyone at some point is going to need that extended to themselves. And if you think you don't, 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Every one of us at some point, because we are not perfect, is going to do something in our human weakness that might cause another person to be offended. We need to receive grace and forgiveness. And we need to be willing to extend that. And so Christ gives some clear instructions about what happens if that does happen. What happens if someone in the church sins against you? What should you do? Well, he prepares his disciples. The first thing he says is rebuke them. If you take a look in the scriptures there, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Brothers and sisters, it is our responsibility as fellow disciples to deal open and honestly with one another in love when it comes to sin in our lives. It is our responsibility as disciples of Jesus Christ to deal open and honestly with one another in love when it comes to sin in our lives. And how do we approach a person? Recognizing our own weakness and need of grace. We need to personally and privately approach a brother or sister with humility and help them to identify the sin in such a way that what, how you do it communicates you're not there to simply condemn them, but rather you are coming to them because you love them and out of concern and out of a desire to be a support to them, you want to help them identify the sin in their lives. I am sad to say that too often in churches, people hear about sin in their lives through gossip. This scripture says, Go to your brother and sister personally and speak to them personally with the desire to see reconciliation. The goal is to minimize the destructive effects of sin on the body. And that is why relationships are so important in the church. And that's why I'm so excited about what God is doing through our discipling communities and through other small group communities. Because the reality is, folks, if we are not in close relationship with one another, we cannot hold each other accountable. In that Real Life Discipleship series, Jim Putman said, relationships are what God uses to communicate his truth and help people to grow. Calvary needs to continue to become a supportive environment where we all understand we need each other. Do you understand that? You need your brothers and sisters sitting with you in the pew this morning to finish the race well. We need each other to help us stay accountable in terms of biblical principles for marriage. We need each other to support each other in how do I raise my children to love and serve God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
We need each other to become confident in God's grace to be able to share our faith publicly with our neighbors. Do you get the pattern? We need each other. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That is why we believe small groups, discipling communities, are so essential for you to become a fully devoted disciple of Christ. He did not intend our pursuit of righteousness to simply be a private endeavor. It's a shared family responsibility, and that is why forgiveness is so important. So if after you approach your brother and sister, they repent, they acknowledge their sin, take responsibility for it, and are truly sore for it, what does Jesus say? Consider forgiving them? No. There's no strings attached. And I struggled with this passage a lot this week, and I did a lot of reading. If you go to a brother or sister and you help them through the power of the Holy Spirit to identify sin in their lives, and they repent, forgive them, and forgive them immediately. Interestingly enough, this occasion right here is the only occasion in the whole New Testament where repentance is after the sin has been committed. Every other instance of repentance in the New Testament is someone going in one direction, recognizing the danger of that direction, then turning and going the other way. Not in this case. In this case, someone has already committed the sin, and now a brother out of love or a sister out of love comes and helps them to see what they have done. They then repent, immediately forgive them when they repent. Immediately forgive them when they repent. Wipe the slate clean so that the relationship can be restored. You see, when repentance occurs, Jesus is teaching you that we dare not withhold forgiveness. See, I always thought of repentance in the other angle. Someone repents, and then we watch them turn the other way. In this instance, you don't have time to watch that. Jesus says, if they have repented and said sorry, you need to forgive them right away. And what's interesting is verbalize that forgiveness personally to them at the time of confession. It's powerful. I read an article related to this this week, and it had three excellent points about forgiveness from this text. First of all, forgiveness is to be granted to those who have sinned against us. Jesus requires his disciples to forgive personal offenses. Secondly, forgiveness is to be granted when verbal confession is given. Proof of genuine repentance can take time. We know that. But Jesus is teaching here that we should not delay in offering forgiveness while we wait for proof that they are truly sorry. It should be immediate, granted on the basis of their verbal confession. And lastly, we see from the scripture, forgiveness is to be granted to those who repeatedly sin against us. This text is getting worse. It's getting worse. Jesus did not use the number seven to set a limit on the number of times we are to forgive those who sin against us. He used it as a figure of speech to tell his disciples that as often as repentance occurs, forgiveness is to be granted. In other words, forgiveness is to be unlimited. This is a really tough and difficult truth to accept and to put in practice. If we neglect to daily remind ourselves of how God forgives you. 
If we forget how God has forgiven us, we will not be able to obey God's command to forgive another person who confesses their sin at that moment. There was a book I read once a couple years ago called Parent Your Kids as God Parents You. And it was a great book to read. Because it just helped me to realize how gracious my Father, Heavenly Father, is with me. How patient He is with me. Oh, He doesn't not discipline me, but it just helped me to understand, hey, bud, before you take it on in your kids, just remember how I have parented you, and I could have taken it on in you, but I didn't. In the same way, we need to learn to forgive as God has forgiven us. 1 John 1, 9, this is what God does for you personally. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and won't forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There we see God's response towards us indicates his nature and gracious commitment to his children. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in God, God in Christ forgave you. And finally, there's a warning that goes with us. If you say, no, you're crazy, I can't do that. Well, Matthew 6.14 and 15, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Now, folks, I understand Trust me, I understand that naturally it is very difficult to forgive like this. We feel it is our right to expect to see change in behavior before we believe someone is truly sorry. And that's why this next series is going to be a great series for us because that's the whole issue. Unlimited. God's rights over our rights. Right? We, it's hard for us to forgive like this because we expect I have the right to see change in you before I believe you are truly sorry. I hope through the word this morning you realize it's important to remember that forgiveness is not granted to a person who deserves to be forgiven. And if you don't believe that, look in the mirror. We did not deserve God's forgiveness. It was an act of grace. It was an act of mercy. It was an act of love. As another author put it, Jesus is teaching that forgiveness is granted by faith, not by the works of the offending party. It is no wonder then, after Jesus lays out, watch yourself, and then he gives this heavy teaching on forgiveness, which is contrary to our natural sinful way of living, it is no wonder that the apostles, in verse 5, said to him, increase our faith. It's like, hold up your hands, there's even an exclamation mark in my Bible. It's like, you got to be kidding me. Increase our faith. They felt overwhelmed. Ever feel overwhelmed trying to live out God's commands and expectations of you as a disciple? Great thing is they made an honest appeal, right? They said, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith because the ability to forgive on the basis of these requirements is not possible without faith. Forgiveness, the second ingredient. And the only way we can do it is the third ingredient, faith. The only way we can forgive like this and live lives where we are watching ourselves is through faith. And the disciples made the same mistake we often make. When faced with the difficult reality of living according to Christ's commands, we often focus on our own limitations, and then we come up with our own solutions that we tell God we think will work for us to follow his commands. What did they say? Increase our faith. They focused on the size of their faith rather than focusing on the limitless, inexhaustible power of who they were following. 
Their answer, their solution for their ability to live out Christ's command was centered on the size of their faith. But for Jesus, it was not about the size. More importantly for Jesus, what he wants to see in us, is there even the presence, as small as a mustard seed, of faith in my son and in my daughter? Is there even the presence of faith? The smallest amount of faith placed in the one and only all-powerful God, creator and sustainer of all things, can accomplish amazing things that we could never think or even imagine. Ephesians 3.20 says, Through his mighty power at work within us, he is able to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. You see, here's, the, here's where the rubber meets the road. To live lives that are holy and pleasing to him, to lovingly be able to confront our brothers and sisters regarding sin and to offer them forgiveness when they have sinned against us without faith in God is impossible. It is impossible. We are saved by faith, but brothers and sisters, we must walk daily by faith as we watch ourselves and as we extend forgiveness to others. We must daily trust and depend on the power of Christ within us, no matter how small or weak that trust or dependency may feel in whatever situation you're going through. All Jesus requires is that there's even the size of a mustard seed of faith present in your life. Isn't that good news? That is amazing news, the size of a mustard seed. We are commanded to forgive, and that is only possible by faith in Christ, we do not have the right to choose what to obey. We don't have the right to choose what to obey. We must forgive and let Christ do the work of sanctification in others. That's what hit me this week as I thought about that. I thought, man, when we talk about repentance, we want to see the change. But this repentance that is, that is talked about in this text is, I'm sorry for what I've done. You offer forgiveness. And here's what I came to realize. Let's obey God's command to forgive, and let's leave the work of sanctification up to Jesus Christ because it's his job anyway. That's what he does great at. He's a specialist at it. So forgive on what he's commanded us to do, and let's take a little bit of attention off of us trying to do the work of sanctification in another person. That's the work of Jesus Christ. Yesterday I heard a great story of an example of this. And I do not even know the names of the people, so I can share this story. But I was having, uh, sat at a table with some people at uh, John Hogenberg's wedding yesterday in Uxbridge. And one of the ladies sitting at the table was telling me the story of her brother. And this individual is in his 40s and uh, was not walking with the Lord. And one thing next to the next before he realized he was totally addicted to cocaine. So much so that his habit and his choice to live in ways that were destructive and disobedient to God destroyed his marriage, so he lost his marriage. Not only that, eventually it got to the point where they were not able to even keep him at his, their parents' house, and they had, had to get him out of the house for their own safety. And this individual, within the last four years, has been living in the streets of the city that our church is in. Living on the streets feeding his addiction to cocaine wherever he can, bouncing around from shelters to shelters, in her words describing it, sleeping with one eye open because you weren't sure if you are going to get robbed or slashed with a knife that night. Terrible situation. But by God's grace, at some point, 
this man must have realized, what am I doing? And somehow, through a conversation with his father, his father exemplified forgiveness and faith the size of a mustard seed, so beautiful. Because his father, over a course of time, was willing to drive this son, who had caused their family so much pain, who had broken apart the home of his daughter-in-law and their kids, but he forgave his son and then drove him daily to Markham to a methadone drug replacement facility to help him so that the withdrawal symptoms of coming off of cocaine would be a little easier. See, there's the faith the size of a mustard seed. I'm going to forgive my son, and I believe, God, you are powerful, and I'm going to drive him each day to this facility because you know what his end goal was? His end goal was to try to get into Teen Challenge, the men's uh, Christian rehabilitation center in London. In order to get into that, you have to be clean. Praise God that his dad was willing to offer forgiveness. Praise God that his dad had faith the size of a mustard seed. And praise God that the testimony I heard yesterday is he has graduated from Teen Challenge, 45-year-old man. He is now having a restored relationship with his immediate family. He has a restored relationship with his children. His marriage isn't back together yet because the reality is even though we offer forgiveness, sometimes there's consequences here on earth as a result of our choices that that might be longer than we were hoping for. But praise God that he is healed, free of his addiction, because his dad was willing to offer forgiveness and have the size of a mustard seed faith in what God can do. It's incredible. Faith. Finally, the final ingredients, obedience. And you know what? Just like the crust is the difference maker between a good pie and a great pie, obedience, service to Christ, is the difference maker between staying stagnant and immature as a disciple and becoming a mature, fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. It's just like the crust because you can know all the other things. You can know to watch yourself. You can know to forgive. And you can know to have faith. But if you don't exercise and put those into practice, you're going to stay stagnant as a follower of Jesus Christ. In the final three verses, Christ tells his disciples a short parable. A very short parable. And he helps his disciples to understand what it means to be an obedient servant of God by describing the life of a servant who goes out and completes all his tasks and at the end of the day after fulfilling all he's been asked to do must still prioritize his master's needs when he returns to the house. Our attitude, brothers and sisters, after we have, with the help of the Holy Spirit, washed ourselves, after we have, with the help of the Holy Spirit, lovingly confronted one another and extended forgiveness to each other. After, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we live lives by faith. And after, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we obediently serve Christ. Our attitude should be that we have simply done our duty. We've done nothing significant other than what Jesus Christ expects of his disciples. In his commentary, John MacArthur says, a servant should not expect reward for what is, for, sorry, a servant should not expect reward for doing what was his duty in the first place. The demanding standards of Christ set for the disciples in the first four verses of this chapter may have seemed too high to them, but they represented only the minimal duties for a servant of Christ. Those who obey are not to think their obedience is worthy of any special honor. You see, sometimes we obey depending on what's the honor going to be for me in it, right? God rewards those who obediently serve him 
without looking for the reward. But you know what's so cool? God recognizes his disciples who obediently serve him. John 14, 21 says, anyone who has my commands and keeps them, obeys them, they are the one who loves me. Through obedience and serving Christ, not looking for the reward, we communicate to him how much we love him. So as disciples, we should obey and serve God because of who he is and because he is worth obeying and serving. Just as Jesus set the standard for forgiveness, he also models the standard for obedient service. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 to 28 says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So brothers and sisters, as we enter this new season of ministry called the fall, as we, by God's grace, enable each other to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we are urged this morning by Jesus Christ to make sure that we incorporate these four ingredients into discipleship. Let's make sure we watch ourselves. Let's make sure we are willing to extend forgiveness to one another. And let's make sure that we're willing to approach one another. Don't get defensive if a brother or sister comes to you to help point in your life something that's not honoring to God. Praise God for a brother or sister who's willing to do that for you. That means they love you. Be willing to forgive one another. Live by faith. Even if it's the size of a mustard seed, it's not the size of faith, it's the size of who your faith is in, and God is all-powerful. And he can do far beyond what you can ever imagine. And finally, all that is so important, but if we don't obey and serve him and exercise those in our lives, we will stay stagnant, we will stay immature, and we will not grow as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. It takes a personal commitment, and it takes a corporate commitment as a congregation. And as we close today, Jordan and the worship team are going to come up, and we're going to sing a song of dedication. Ex expressing our heart to God that in light of what you've laid out for us, Lord, here we are. We will consecrate our lives to you, and my prayer is that God will make something beautiful of what he's doing here at Calvary Baptist Church, not for our glory, not for our honor, but for his glory and for his honor, and that we will be a biblically-based, disciple-making group of disciples who follow Jesus Christ. Jesus had a conversation with his disciples that day. You and I are a result of their willingness to obey what he taught them that day. My question to us as a congregation is how far will the impact of his conversation to us today through his word go in the future? I pray that it will not stop with us, but I pray that it will continue to grow and expand, that God will do such amazing things in our midst because of our willingness to watch ourselves, forgive one another, live by faith, and obediently serve him. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it, it says, In your relationships with one another, which we've talked about this morning, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I hope you are excited to see what God can do and wants to do in our midst. The question is, will you participate in his mission in our lives in this new coming season that we are about to embark on? After I close in prayer, we're going to do something that normally we do at the beginning of the service because I want us to get it in our heads that it's about relationships and it's about a community family responsibility to apply these four ingredients to our lives. So after I've prayed, I'm going to ask you to find five or six people, greet them, Tell them that it was great to see them at church this morning and say, I'll see you up at Camp Samak in about 12 minutes. <laughs> All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's alive. Thank you, Jesus, for the amazing conversation you had with your disciples that day. Thank you that the truth and the impact that your word can still have in our lives, even though we're physically not having a conversation with you, we are through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. What an awesome privilege, Lord. Thank you for the responsibility that those disciples took seriously. We are fruit of their willingness to take that seriously. Oh God, would you help us as a congregation to change our perspective of how we look at ourselves as a body. And may we look at following you and becoming fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ as a family, church family, shared responsibility. And would you help each of us personally to follow you, and then also help us, Lord, in the midst of this corporate church, help us to do our part to ensure that we all finish the race well. And it's going to be through the power of your Spirit in our lives. Thank you that with you, nothing is impossible. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greet one another.